title of our show today is "Who Cares." Or you could also say it "WHO Cares." Well, no matter how you look at it, we're definitely going to be talking about the World Health Organization in today's Taiwan Insider. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's first take a look at what's been on our radar. Taiwan evacuated 367 citizens from China's Hubei province on two charter flights this week. They had been stranded since the coronavirus pandemic broke out in Hubei's capital, Wuhan, late last year. All passengers are in quarantine and are being tested for COVID-19. President Tsai Ing-wen has announced that Taiwan will donate 10 million surgical masks to countries that have been hard hit by the COVID-19 outbreak. Government efforts to ramp up production have more than quadrupled Taiwan's output to 13 million masks a day. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu says that the U.S., countries in Europe, and Taiwan's diplomatic allies are likely to be the recipients. The government has introduced new social distancing guidelines for public places. The guidelines came as the number of COVID-19 cases in Taiwan surpassed 300. They recommend that people stay at least a meter apart when outdoors and one and a half meters apart indoors. There are no penalties in place to punish offenders, but the government says they may be introduced in the future. U.S. President Donald Trump has signed the Taipei Act into law. That's after both houses of the U.S. Congress passed it unanimously. The act seeks to deter other countries from downgrading their ties with Taiwan. It also provides U.S. backing for Taiwan's participation in international organizations. A prominent Taiwanese politician, former Premier Hao Bo-chun, has died at the age of 100. Before becoming Premier, Hao had a distinguished military career. He led the battle between the ROC and PLA forces in Kinmen. He served as defense minister, and he was also the longest-serving chief of the general staff. Now for our words of the week, Andrew, ready to guess? Yes. So what you have? Cocktail.、Uh, goat.、Uh, <laughs> Gabby. Gar. Gar. Gap. Gap. <laughs> My former employer. <laughs>、oh. <laughs> okay, we're not talking about that gap.、Um, there is a major gap between Taiwan and the World Health Network because we're not a member of the WHO. I'll be telling you why I think the WHO needs Taiwan. Also, the government wants us to keep a greater physical gap between people. So,、mm. we'll be telling you about those new rules、All、in、right. just a moment. Excellent. You ready for my word? Yes. All right. V for victory. No. Vigilance. Yes. Good、Excellent. word. Yeah. So、uh, some people have been saying that actually the coronavirus situation in Taiwan is spreading more slowly than expected. However, the health minister and other health officials are saying it's important, really important, right now to continue staying vigilant. So maintain vigilance, everybody. Great idea. All right. Let's put these words up on the shelf. And today I have one more thing I want to put up on the shelf. Wow! Did you make that, Andrew? Yes, I did.、Uh, I actually made this. This is in solidarity with all our brothers and sisters around the world wearing masks, especially those who have faced discrimination or racism for、mm. protecting themselves and protecting others. So let's put this up on the wall. We're going to begin with a video about Taiwan that went viral for all the wrong reasons. Radio Television Hong Kong journalist Yvonne Tang asked the WHO Assistant Director Bruce Aylward a great question about Taiwan. Will the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? Hello. 
with it, with it, I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. Now, at the end of the clip there, it looks as though he's actually hung up on the call in order to evade answering the question about Taiwan. Now, as you can imagine, that created quite a stir, and we'll be sharing some of those responses with you in just a moment in hashtag Taiwan. But for now, suffice it to say, the response was so strong that the WHO came out the next day and said that it has been working with Taiwan experts. But the following day, Taiwan's foreign ministry said the WHO statement misrepresented the facts and that Taiwan wants to join the WHO. Now, in light of the current pandemic, I'd say the WHO needs Taiwan. And that's the topic of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you why the WHO needs Taiwan to become a full-fledged member. All right, Natalie, we have a minute on the clock. Are you ready to go? Yes, I am. Let's do it. When Taiwan heard about a SARS-like virus in Wuhan, it saw the threat before anyone else. On December 31st, it began monitoring passengers from Wuhan. The U.S. State Department spokesperson said December 31st, that's the same day Taiwan first tried to warn the WHO of human-to-human -human transmission. Chinese authorities, meanwhile, silenced doctors with catastrophic consequences. The WHO ignored Taiwan's warning. In fact, Though Taiwan has won global praise for its containment of COVID-19, the foreign ministry says from the start of the epidemic, the WHO has not shared the information Taiwan has given it about its prevention methods. Taiwan has not been allowed to participate in 70% of WHO technical meetings in the past decade. And Taiwan can't participate in the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. Now, Taiwan lets experts rather than politics lead the way in health issues like Vice President Sun Jinren, who is an epidemiologist. What? Oh, wow. One last uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, when the world isn't clear what's going on in China, Taiwan can help. That's a great way to end it, Natalie. And that is today's Taiwan Explained. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, I once again am coming to you from an RTI studio. Now, for those of you that missed last week's show, I'm doing this because Natalie, Andrew, and I are trying to maintain social distance. Now, as always, I would like to assure everybody out there who misses me that I'm fine. Anyway, the hot topic of this week is the interview clip with Assistant Director General of the WHO, Bruce Aylward, you were shown earlier. Now, for how unusual and bizarre and blatant it was, it drew a huge response in the media and online. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I'll give you an abridged version right now. A journalist from radio television Hong Kong interviews a WHO official. The journalist asks a question about Taiwan. The WHO official pretends not to hear the question. The journalist repeats her question. The WHO official turns off the call. Now, Johan Vorster said it best when he said, wow, that was uncomfortable. My favorite part of the interview is when Bruce Ailes Word first hangs up the call, leaving the journalist Yvonne Tong to sit there, maintaining an expression perfectly balanced between professionalism, befuddlement, and an emotion that I can only describe as, did that really just happen? Really? Did that just happen? Is that for real? I'm going to start off with a comment from former RTI English team member Charlie Storer. He posts, Oh, we're just about to go into a tunnel, said Aylward, before his words gave way to an unconvincing white noise. 
No one is buying into Aylward's charade that he had a poor internet connection. In fact, the only thing people seem to buy is the possibility that Aylward has been bought out by the Chinese government. Now, during my research, I saw a lot of references to a money symbol behind Aylward, and it wasn't until later that I realized people were talking about the WHO flag behind Aylward during the interview. On it, there's an insignia that actually resembles a dollar sign. Now, people might take this as a cynical symbol of how the WHO has been bought out by the Chinese government. Now, Aylward is Canadian, and he, for his actions, he's actually drawn the ire of his fellow Canadians. Peggy Ann Vince says, I live in St. Albert, Alberta, Canada, and I can say we as a people that are informed cannot believe the hypocrisy of WHO not to acknowledge Taiwan's great job in this international pandemic. It should be evident to anyone that they are not part of China. Now, James Kung goes one step further and says, as a Taiwanese, he's the rudest Canadian I've ever seen. This entire fiasco has just been so strange and almost comical that people are memeing the situation. Yo Lin Xie tagged her friend Sharon Su in a post saying that the entire interview was like when you ask your man, what are we? The joke is that when a girl tries to clarify her relationship with a man, the man just tends to kind of ignore it or walk away. Now, admiration for Yvonne Tong, the journalist, is skyrocketing. People are asking where they can follow her. Now, I actually have her Twitter handle for you right here. It's Yvonne underscore TG. Now, that's all I have for you this week. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. And Andrew and Natalie, stay away from each other. All right. Thanks a lot, Leslie. Now, I have something here that I want to show you. This is what one point five meters looks like. Now, the reason why I'm showing you what this is is because uh, Taiwan's government has released new recommendations for social distancing, and they're saying 1.5 meters indoors, one meters outdoors. We just made it, Andrew. Barely. <laughs> Barely. Barely. <laughs> so how possible is it going to be to leave that much of a gap between you and your friends and family and people you don't know? Well, that's the question because Taiwan is a very dense place. Let's have a look. With global cases of COVID-19 on the rise, social distancing has become the name of the game. Keeping a safe distance from other people is vital to cutting down transmission. Deputy Health Minister Xue Reiyuan says that social distancing rules will be rolled out in three steps. The first step is creating concrete guidelines for people to follow. The second is educating the public on the measures. And the third and final step will be fining people who don't comply. Space in Taiwan is limited, though, so it will be difficult to follow social distancing rules in tight spaces like subways, elevators, and even restaurants. Long lines of people waiting to buy face masks could get even longer when the new rules kick in. And as for taking someone's temperature when they're entering a public space, that might be impossible to do from a distance. Now, I recently spoke with National Taiwan University epidemiologist Ling Chenhe, and I asked him what he thought of this new guideline of 1 to 1.5 meters between people. Yeah, I mean, 1 meter is, is sort of the minimum because we, we know clearly from the uh, various aerosol and droplet studies that, you know, um, you know, not to talk about coughing or sneezing, just simply talking. Talking loudly can generate a little droplets that can go um, quite beyond one meters. Really? 1.6 or even two meters. Yeah, there, there are plenty. I mean, there are, there are now plenty of videos from this kind of high-speed camera that captures the, you know, 
the, 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 the movement of droplets uh, is invisible to, you know, to eyes. But if you use high-speed camera, it's very clear. So after talking with Lynn, now I understand why we need to keep that social distance, Andrew, because mm. just talking can infect people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, You're no. going to be healthy. No, <laughs> well, it's good to see you were doing the interview via Zoom, too. Yes. So, so a lot of safe. that is going on these days, a lot mm. of video conferencing. He also mentioned that masks really help mm-hmm. um, protect each other. So that's something else that we can do. Okay. And we do want to remind you that actually starting on April 1st, all intercity buses and trains will require that passengers wear face masks at all times. So that's something you want to keep in mind as we head into the four-day Tomb Sweeping Festival weekend. In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to be talking about the Tomb Sweeping Festival, which people in countries across Asia will be celebrating this weekend, specifically on Saturday, April 4th this year. Now, as you can imagine... Uh, the Tomb Sweeping Festival has something to do with taking care of grave sites and praying to your ancestors. We're going to start off with a question. How long have people been celebrating the Tomb Sweeping Festival? Wow. It's been for ages, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say um, 1,500 years. 1,500 years. All right. That's a very good guess. Let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow, even longer. 2,500 years. Time. It is a long oh time. There are records of this? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as you saw in that last picture, uh, that's what the tombs look like here in Taiwan. A lot of them are very large. They're located on mountainsides often, mm-hmm. often with a great view. And so what people will do is they'll put out food as an offering. Uh, of course, they'll also sweep the grave site. Um, they put out alcohol, they burn incense as an offering, and also uh, burn paper money, which is thought to be useful in the afterworld. Um, now, they also do something with these colored pieces of paper. They place them on top of the tombs using stones. Now, these pieces of paper are associated with a number. What number is associated with those colored pieces of paper? I have no idea. <laughs> um, six? All right. Very good guess. Let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow. So it's five. You can see on the tomb in the back there, they've used stones to place these five colored pieces of paper on the top of the tomb. Hmm. And that's sort of symbolic of, I guess, helping your ancestors renovate or upgrade the roof on the house in the afterworld. Are you serious? Yes. That's interesting. And the five colors, don't ask me specifically which five they are because it could be many different colors, but most often we see red, yellow, and white, and then a variety of other colors to add up to five. So, finally today, I want to tell you about a very famous Chinese scroll painting which is connected to this festival, the Tomb Sweeping Festival. It is called Along the River During the Qingming Festival. Oh, I've heard Qingming that, yeah. It's a really long painting, right? That's right. I actually want to show you uh, the painting. Let's have a look at that. So down at the bottom, see that long strip there? That's the shape of the painting. It's five meters long and 25 centimeters high. And you can see some of the detail in the top um, picture that you can see there. That's just a tiny part of it, which is located in the square at the bottom left. Now, this painting was uh, created by artist Zhang Zetuan in the 12th century in the Song Dynasty. Uh, And 
Uh, what's amazing about it is that it shows the, the festival, the tomb sweeping festival, and the many scenes of everyday life. So it's a very celebratory picture. And you can see what life was like at that time, too, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I think this is Kaifeng in China, uh, is the city. Uh, so I want to ask you how many humans are featured oh, in this wow. picture? That's interesting. <laughs> 120? All right, let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow, that many! 814 humans. So, you know, if you look at that painting, you can see that those people aren't actually keeping a social distance. They're in pretty packed tightly in there. Uh, so I think a lot of people are a little bit worried about celebrating the Tomb Sweeping Festival mm. this year. But don't worry, the city of Taichung has a creative and safe way for you to celebrate from home. Let's have a look. With just a few clicks of a button, it's now possible to do your tomb sweeping duties from the comfort of your own home, as long as the deceased is buried at one of Taichung's public burial sites. The website offers videos of 34 public columbariums, or repositories for bones, located throughout Taichung. The service is available not just for Buddhists and Taoists, but for people of other religions, too. Taichung City launched the site to encourage people to pay their respects online instead of in person. The goal is to help reduce the crowds in the run-up to the Tomb Sweeping Festival, and that, in turn, will help curb the spread of COVID-19. Public reaction has so far been mixed. While some say they prefer the traditional way of praying at gravesites, others appreciate the convenience. And now it's time for our lightning round news quiz. Andrew has 60 seconds to answer as many questions from the news this week as he can, and you can play along at home if you like. Are you ready, Andrew? Send help. <laughs> this shouldn't be too hard. Okay. Okay, ready? Yes. Go. How many masks is Taiwan going to donate to other countries? Uh, 10 million. Good. Where did over 350 Taiwanese fly back from this week? Hubei in China. Yes. What new 1 million NT dollar product are Taiwan 7-Elevens now selling? Oh, pass. <laughs> Boats. Boats? Yes. <laughs> okay. What did the health minister say was the social cost in NT dollars of each COVID-19 patient? Social cost? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, $2,000. About $2 million NT dollars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Misunderstood the question. Okay. What U.S. officials spoke in favor of Taiwan's participation in the World Health Assembly this week? Uh, Morgan, uh, uh, no, no. Uh, uh, Trump. Mike Pompeo. Oh, okay. Secretary of State. <laughs> Taiwan is one of the few countries in the world where children still do what? Um, go to school. Yes. Since people are staying home more, doctors have come out to say people should do what? Uh, staying home, uh, keep their, uh, uh, staying out of the hospital. <laughs> Exercise. Oh. <laughs> That's because sitting too long, like six hours straight, increases the rate, a risk of stroke and premature death. Also, there is a research that came out this week about teenagers. Um, and if they sit too long, they have an increased risk for what? <laughs> um, teenagers? Yeah. Like... I don't know, falling asleep? <laughs> what do teenagers they have a higher risk of playing video games? <laughs> that too. Depression. Oh, depression. All right, that's our news quiz for the week. We hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. And remember to keep that distance. That's right. <laughs> For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Have a safe tomb sweeping festival.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. In the midst of this coronavirus epidemic, the rights of migrant workers have become an issue after one was found to have COVID-19. Today, I speak with National Taiwan University professor Lan Peijia, who is the director of the Global Asia Research Center at the university and the author of Raising Global Families. She is also one of the advocates that petitioned the government to give undocumented workers an amnesty at this time so that more of them would come forward if they're sick. The government responded by extending a three-month amnesty for foreigners who have overstayed their visas from April to June. I asked her about one of the key issues that leads to the exploitation of migrant workers, that most of them get hired through a brokerage system, which charges extremely large fees. I asked Lan if Taiwan should get rid of the brokerage system. I wouldn't say every broker is corrupt, (laughs) but Uh I think structurally, brokers has a very strong incentive to side with employers. Mm-hmm. rather than work. Uh, sure. Yeah, so that's why, you know, the financial costs and also when labor disputes happen, they usually side with the employers instead of protecting the labor rights mm. of migrants. So I think um, some NGOs have been advocating to abolish the system of brokers at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to adapt the Korean system. Like the Korean system, most of the migrant factory workers are actually hired through a government-to-government system mm-hmm. without the mediation of commercial brokers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good model to follow, although it's probably not very easy to do so mm-hmm. at this moment because we already have this whole system built up. So I think it's very important uh, for the government to find ways to encourage to encourage employers to go through the direct hiring channels. Like I said, right now the bureaucratic cost is too high mm-hmm. for them. And also I think we need to create some incentive for employers to do that. Um, for example, you, you can lower the fee uh, collected from employers, from the governments, you know, for example, like that. Mm-hmm. So we have to make the direct hiring work. Right. And we also need to, I think it's also better for the, um, to allow the migrant worker to, to, to continue the second or the third term of their contract without paying the placement fee again. And if they want to change employers, I mean, I remember that was an issue too. Yes, it actually already changed that they don't have to leave the country. Before, they have to leave the country for a week uh-huh. and come back, or right now they don't have to. But still, in reality, we still heard that many workers are forced to pay placement fee again yeah. for their second or third term. It's a business, right? So I think that these people, these companies are trying to make as much money as they can off of these workers. Right. And I think how to make the information more transparent, mm-hmm. how to make the system more accessible for both workers and employers would also be very important. So that's that's a quite a big structural uh, issue as well, right? Yes. 
So, but I think it's great that uh, you and many of the other activists um, are speaking out and on behalf of these migrant workers at this time. Yeah, and also I think uh, many, I think it's actually provide a good opportunity for the society to acknowledge and understand the, the structural problem, you know, the, the, the whole system has been here for a long time. And it's actually an open secret in the hospitals that a lot of undocumented migrant care workers are working there. Mm. It's open secret. Everybody mm-hmm. knows it. But, but because we need their labor, so people are turning a blind eye to the issue. So when they're undocumented, what kind of, um, I mean, of course, they can be deported any time, but um, are they uneligible for health care and other things like that? Yeah, unfortunately, um, they are not eligible Mm -hmm. to the health insurance. And Mm -hmm. I know that some of them actually borrow the insurance card. From, from their friends. Oh, people can't tell the difference. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but for minor issue, you know, like having a cold, that's okay. But for the COVID-19, you cannot use someone else's health card right. to get the service. So it's, it's a very, actually very critical, especially for those working in the hospital. They are the most vulnerable group. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the case we talk about uh, in, in February, it is actually very important to know that all the medical staff members, the nurses, the doctors who took care of the Taiwanese patients, they are not sick at all. They are not. Only the care workers who got the virus. So that shows that it's really the care workers, especially the undocumented ones, who are exposed the most severe risk of health uh, issues. Mm. Well, I think it's great that um, you're bringing their rights um, to the forefront, you know, of the government's attention and, and public attention. I hope that the government will continue to watch out for these people. I think your message is really something that people need to hear, and even internationally. I mean, think about all the hate crimes that are going on. Right, I think right. that it's similar issues actually happening in other countries now. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of hate crimes against Asians. Um, now in Taiwan, I think it might, you know, you can see the similar xenophobia against migrant workers, mm-hmm. right, when one of them has, has them, though it's... it's because he, she was taking care of someone else who was right. a patient, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but I do, I do think that over the years, I think the Taiwanese society has slowly changing the perspective mm-hmm. about migrant workers, especially the migrant care workers, because as you can imagine, like there are more than like two hundred fifty thousand households are depending on them to take care of the elderly, the sick, the disabled. So people do realize, you know, how much they have contributed mm-hmm. to the Taiwanese society. That's true. Mm. What about new immigrants, the, the marriage, the spouses? Do you think that um, the society is more accepting of them now as well? Yeah, I do think so. Probably even more so. Because 
the marriage migrants because they have been incorporated into the society even more.、Mm-hmm. Most of them become citizens.、Mm-hmm. So, for example,、uh, you know, in in this COVID nineteen crisis, the target has always been upon. The PRC migrants, especially those who haven't changed their citizenship status, so you know there is there, not much, not much conversation targets Vietnamese migrants who have become naturalized. Right. Right. People are afraid that those Chinese spouses. Yeah. Are yeah. Of course, it, it has a lot to do with the virus coming from China and all that. But but still, I think once they become naturalized citizens, you know, in 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 the image, they 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 are more included and incorporated, especially if their children. Are Taiwanese citizens? Are you talking about both Southeast Asian and Chinese marriage immigrants? Yeah, I think so.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I do see that the government has also opened up a lot of different、um, industries, right?、Um, teachers and, and tour guides and all kinds of、um, jobs that they can take on as well. Right. Yeah. Do you think that their children are going to grow up being、um, feeling、uh, just as much as Taiwan society as any other child? Are we talking about the children of Southeast Asian mother?、Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is the issue. What the government now calls the new second generation, right?、Mm-hmm. It's a new term they are using. They have coined recently to replace the previous term, new Taiwanese children. Oh, so, so they're called. What are they called? Yeah, Xin Taiwan Zhizi, the、right. new Taiwanese children.、Mm-hmm. So, look at. The changing of terminology, you will see, you will notice a, a changing perspective about these children, right? Before we call them the new Taiwanese children, it is it's carry very strong connotation of assimilation,、mm-hmm. right?、Mm-hmm. But right now we call them the new second generation. It's much more neutral、mm. and almost like recognizing their. Bicultural background、mm-hmm. uh, as a neutral or even positive、mm-hmm. thing. So, so I do think the social perspective have changed largely in the context of new southbound policy. So, I think on a symbolic level,、um, the new second generation no longer suffered the discrimination. Uh, they had before because before they were questioned if they are Taiwanese enough because、right. their mothers are not <laughs> Taiwanese. But right now they are considering you know, something, something different. Something novel, <laughs> But right? But different might be good one. Right, they <laughs> but, they have a... but, right because they have this you know multicultural background、mm-hmm. that might be a good thing. Not、right. only for themselves, but also for the country as a whole,、mm-hmm. because they can bring us to Southeast Asia、right. with all the connection and, and language ability. But that's on a symbolic level. But but in, on an everyday basis, that might be different.、Mm-hmm. So I think individual children may still suffer from minor discrimination or aggression on an everyday level.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the situation in Taiwan is slightly different because most of these children actually look very similar to 
uh, Taiwanese children. Right. Physically, they could pass. So the difference is not so visible. Mm-hmm. So I think the challenge is really because because the social economic status of many of the households they grow up in, if their mothers uh, come to Taiwan through commercial marriage, commercial brokerage mediated marriage, so it's likely their families are not so well well off financially. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a social class issue rather than ethnicity issue. That's true. Most of these marriages are with fathers of lower education, right? right Blue collar, right, right. Or those who live in in the countryside, yeah. remote areas. So the opportunities, education opportunities, are probably not as good as those in urban areas. Right. So some researcher actually found if we control the social economic status. We actually see no difference between these migrant children and, and native children in terms of their academic performance and future development. Well, I think it is good to see that um, they are becoming integrating into Taiwan society. Yeah, yeah, of course. They grew up in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. They were born in Taiwan. Yeah, <laughs> and they are very essential parts right. of Taiwan. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's great that um, you, you, you and your colleagues are speaking out for the migrant workers at this time. It's important for all of us to really uh, watch out for each other. Well, it, thank you. Yes. I also, uh, um, I think uh, there's a lot of still a lot of issue for mm-hmm. for us to understand and handle with in the future. A medical crisis like now, I think, is unfortunate, but also brings a lot of important lesson for us. That was Professor Lam Peijia, the director of the Global Asia Research Center at National Taiwan University. She is also the author of Raising Global Families. Professor Lan is a prominent activist for the rights of migrant workers in Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste, and the destination Kaohsiung, the 1860s. On any given evening, rows of tour buses and columns of scooter-riding locals come out to the northern entrance of Kaohsiung Harbor. Not far from here is Shizuwan Beach, a fantastic place to watch the sunset out over the Taiwan Strait. Here, where Long Life Mountain meets the coast, there are many fine views to choose from. One vantage point is commanded by a handsome brick building that has watched over this harbor for over a century. 
It was here well before the huge container ships that now anchor offshore, and before the nighttime lights that reflect off this port city's harbor today. This building is the former British consulate at Takao, Takao being an old name for Kaohsiung. It was designed by a British architect, servant of an empire on which it was said the sun never set. Though Taiwan never came under British rule, the empire's influence could still be felt on this coast. And though never rulers, the consuls and subjects of Queen Victoria left their mark here in Kaohsiung in other ways. Here to tell us more about the old consulate is Lin Shangying. She is deputy head of Kaohsiung City's Cultural Affairs Bureau, the custodians of this historic site. Over the next two weeks, she'll be introducing the lives of the people who lived and worked here and the consulate's place in Taiwan's history. Ms. Lin says that Kaohsiung began to attract Western interest in the mid-19th century. Like most ports in imperial China, it had been closed to foreign trade. But the opium wars that took place around this time saw Western powers force them open. In the 1860s, Kaohsiung was added to the growing list of places where trade was allowed. Britain, one of the main powers behind the opening of these ports, moved to build consular outposts in these places. The vice consul appointed to do this on Taiwan was Robert Swinho. He'd already had some experience on Taiwan, and in 1861, he set up the first vice consulate in what's now Tainan. But he didn't stay there. Ms. Lin says that in part, this had to do with a lack of natural protection for ships and difficulties with loading and unloading cargo. Finally, in 1864, after some moving around, it was decided to move the whole operation down to Kaohsiung, where a new customs house had opened. Swinho soon got a promotion, becoming a full-fledged consul, and so this outpost became a full-fledged consulate, too. But it wasn't anything impressive at first. Getting settled in took a long time. In the beginning, the consulate had to be based on a boat floating in the harbor. Later, a building was rented, but the permanent home we see today was still many years off. It was only in 1879 that a team of Chinese workers using Chinese materials completed the consul's British design. The new consulate building sat next to the customs house down by the harbor, while up in the hills out back was a consular residence. The arched verandas that wrap around both buildings must have been a cool retreat during the blistering tropical summers here. But why go through all this trouble, building and staffing a consulate? Why not just leave the merchants to get on with their trading? What was the consulate's purpose, and what were the consul's responsibilities? Ms. Lin says promoting trade was the consulate's primary reason for existing. The consul had trade reports and commercial surveys to write, as well as a role in resolving business disputes. But in addition to trade, she lists two other important roles the consulates played. Uh, 
The first was protecting British subjects in the area as well as their property. Then she says there was a mission to improve ties with Imperial China. The job could involve a lot of paperwork. 那当然，领事每天的工作其实非常的多。那包含呃，每年的一月，他必须要把。In January alone, she says, the consul had to draw up records of where British residents in the area were living, as well as of things like births, deaths, and marriages in the foreign community. She says reports on trade figures for the previous year were also due around this time. The job also came with another big responsibility. Ms. Lin says that for foreign residents here, the consul was the law. Uh, 在那个时期，就清末的时期，哈，英国领事他必须要呃独立行使呃领事裁判权。那这个领事行使。The Western powers that had forced ports like Gaoxiong open also insisted that their nationals be granted extraterritoriality, meaning that if trouble arose, the imperial Chinese legal system couldn't touch them. In cases involving foreign nationals, foreign consuls were to have jurisdiction. As Ms. Lin describes it, they were judge and prosecutor in criminal cases, hearing plaintiffs, defendants, and witnesses, looking at evidence, and administering punishments. She says the consuls here had constables at their disposal, and that the consulate came equipped with a jail cell. Gaoxiong never achieved the fame of some of the other ports forced open during this period. But history was made here, nonetheless. Today, the former consulate brings this history to life through a series of snapshots from the past, reenacted with wax figures on the consulate grounds. Through these scenes, visitors get to know some of the consuls who lived here, along with a few other 19th-century people whose fates brought them to Gaoxiong over the years. Ms. Lin is going to guide us through these scenes to give us a look at who these people were and what they did. The first scene shows an imagining of what the street view in front of the consulate may have looked like during the 19th century. There are locals and foreigners, and a few people with goods to sell. What sorts of things were people buying and selling here? 当时的南部，呃，主个主要的出口的产品是以糖为主，那大部分都是从打狗港来的。Ms. Lin says that southern Taiwan had become known for its sugar during these years. And that sugar exported from Gaoxiong could fetch a good price on the market. That if we look at export goods, because at that time, the Chinese and Taiwanese the major import of the time was opium. Ports like this one had, after all, been opened after two opium wars. But by this point, British textiles, now made on an industrial scale, were also sought after here. The trade was carried out by large Western firms. Tate and Dent being just two of the more famous examples, but this trade wasn't carried out directly with local suppliers. Ms. Lin says a system of compradors or middlemen was set up, in part to make sure that this foreign trade went smoothly. That 买办他熟悉外国人的语言，那也熟悉本地的民情。这个买办他就成为外国商人跟本地居民。These middlemen were imperial Chinese subjects. Who understood the local language and who had an intimate knowledge of the local business environment and its demands. At the same time, these people also spoke European languages and had come to master Western business practices as well. In this scene, what looks to be a European merchant is talking with his comprador, a well-dressed man in a fine blue jacket 
that sticks out against the regular cloth shirts of the vendors behind him. Ms. Lin says that some merchant comprador pairs did well together. Other partners, meanwhile, had a relationship that wasn't always so cordial, with disputes of various kinds breaking out. But like it or not, this was just something that both sides would have to put up with in order to profit from the rich sugarcane fields of the southern interior. We'll return to this street scene next week to meet the figure who stands in the center of it all, a European woman in a green Victorian dress. Ms. Lin will also take us through the rest of the series to meet some of the other inhabitants of this world, a man who brought Taiwan's wildlife to London circles, a pair whose failed negotiations saw gunboats sent to these shores, and a missionary with an unusual way of winning over converts. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. Explained. I'm going to tell you why the WHO needs Taiwan to become a full-fledged member. All right, Natalie, we have a minute on the clock. Are you ready to go? Yes, I am. Let's do it. When Taiwan heard about a SARS-like virus in Wuhan, it saw the threat before anyone else. On December 31st, it began monitoring passengers from Wuhan. The U.S. State Department spokesperson said December 31st, that's the same day Taiwan first tried to warn the WHO of human-to-human -human transmission. Chinese authorities, meanwhile, silenced doctors with catastrophic consequences. The WHO ignored Taiwan's warning. In fact, Though Taiwan has won global praise for its containment of COVID-19, the foreign ministry says from the start of the epidemic, the WHO has not shared the information Taiwan has given it about its prevention methods. Taiwan has not been allowed to participate in 70% of WHO technical meetings in the past decade. And Taiwan can't participate in the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. Now, Taiwan lets experts rather than politics lead the way in health issues like Vice President Sun Jinren, who is an epidemiologist. What? Oh, wow. One last uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the world isn't clear what's going on in China, Taiwan can help. That's a great way to end it, Natalie. And that is today's Taiwan Explained. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. 
You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. RTI, exercise for your mind. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.